It is Destazapod. You have provided me with questions, and I will deliver on to you answers. Uh, quite a few things to cover this week. Let's go over a little bit of news and update. Uh, it is just about to be Chinese New Year, so there's not a whole hell of a lot going on on the production and development side of things. I'm using this time to kind of catch up on future orders and upcoming projects like Cray and the Sea of Daggers, which we haven't broken ground yet in terms of the factory starting anything because we're going to wait for this holiday pause before uh, jumping in and committing to that project. But uh, all the same, the initial target date of December of 2024, I think we're still going to beat that uh, by quite a considerable amount of time. So um, that's what's going on there. On the uh, Zed Star 7 front, we got some really exciting big shows announcing soon. Now, if you're not local to us, not sure. Makes a whole hell of a lot of sense to uh, brief you on these things. But uh, needless to say, uh, me and the guys are really juiced and excited about a upcoming uh, art exhibit that we will be doing an installation at, or at least that's the plan as of right now. Um, in many ways, I think this art exhibit will be Z-Star functioning in its truest capacity because we've always been somewhat hamstrung by the small venues we've played because one, if you ever play a, a mixed venue, which means, you know, a bar or a restaurant with a stage, they don't give a shit about anybody on stage. They give you the stage, which is very generous of them to play on, but you don't have a sound guy you're on your own for plugging everything in, figuring out how the lights and how the PA works and all that. And, um, you know, uh, they don't charge you anything. They don't pay you anything. And, uh, you know, the experience is yours to create. But um, that has left us without the ability to incorporate visuals in a way that we'd like to. Um, I, I really think the, the sort of fully actualized version of this idea of Zed Star 7 has actually never been sort of birthed in real life. Um, so this upcoming art exhibit, which I'll talk about more on a future episode once everything's confirmed and the details are locked, uh, I think that is going to be really a, a true coming out party for us because we're going to have everything dialed in. There's going to be interactivity. It's going to be visually very striking. Hopefully we get a lot of great footage of it. But um, this I am, uh, I'm certainly very excited for. Now, with all that said, uh, we got a lot of questions to cover today, so I'm going to hop right into them. And I'm going to go to the Discord for a bunch of questions that I did not get to uh, in our previous episode, which was just focused on one sort of central idea. But from Quickening Heroes, there are two questions here, actually. We've seen the ranks of the Death Worshippers slowly grow over time with Redeather, Driver X, Death diver will we see more of this cult story-wise or will we be sticking to just julio and his dad from here on uh the second question is the ashen royal guard is very similar to the og death worshiper are they connected i missed out now the on the initial release of the ashen set and i want to know more about the turtle lord the widow and the guard um these are both great questions i think that largely if you think of knights of the slice and the stories that are happening there's kind of uh, three theaters of war that are going on right now. We have kind of the light versus dark, 
right? So you have the forces of Radic and Alexander, and you have the forces of Julio, Julio and his father um, within the sort of uh, death cult, as it, as it may be called, you know, which is currently sort of headed up by Julio and his dad. Um, there's this long lineage of different iterations of the Death Knight, and even predating that with the Proto Knight um, and the Chaos King and things like that. Uh, so there are these sort of two factions that are kind of uh, on the forefront and will be struggling for, you know, control of uh, what happens here. Um, there are sort of external conflicts that are going on as well, like the uh, Bugman versus the Q, and um, I think you could also argue the machinations of the Trilobite King and things of that nature. Uh, but... Largely, we have sort of that divide being drawn. And then kind of in the middle, we have uh, the Burned. And we have, you know, Rex Gannon's old cadre of people like Vaughn and Jessica and Lady Beowulf. And, um, you know, maybe some uh, newcomers to that faction who are, they're sort of stuck in the middle of this conflict uh, in a apolitical way in, in many regards. The central idea of Death Knight was just to kind of destroy what he saw as a superstructure, this this monolith, the the Fred Foods conglomerate, you know, this corporation, this mega corporation that had its own standing army that uh, essentially, you know, left him for dead. Um, so with that, that sort of genesis idea from the Death Knight, the, the idea of destroying the structures as they are, um, that is very... Uh, that's a sort of very powerful notion, and obviously, it has that idea has spread, and uh, you know, led to all sorts of different people who buy into that ideology that they see the structures need to be destroyed so that something new potentially could be rebuilt. Um, if you get into the world of the light, quote unquote, with Alexander and his followers, they are seeking to sort of uh, just overtake not only the world, but all the known dimensions. They believe in the myth of a charismatic leader, that there should be one ordained ruler, uh, ironically, it's usually male, uh, who should be should hold dominion over not just Earth, but all worlds. Um, the destruction of the structures within that world are sort of inconsequential to somebody like Alexander. He can either co-op them and have them follow him, or he will wipe them out. He, you know, that doesn't really matter. Um, and if there's anything to be rebuilt, it is only to be rebuilt at his direction and, um, you know, under his control. Um, you could argue that the sort of, the death cult want to rebuild something for the people at the bottom. Um, so that people that have been maligned or misused by these structures. I think, you know, the original Protonite is a great example of that. This is a, a guy who was sort of maimed in service of a corporation and then terminated so that they didn't have to cover his medical bills. Um, the death cult want to sort of destroy all this stuff so that there is a inkling of possibility for something new to be rebuilt with the, the sort of plebs, if you will, being in charge. So it's an interesting sort of uh, dialectically opposed, uh, you know, duo of forces that are, that are kind of 
interlocked in combat over this idea. I think that we're going to see more from both sides of this argument uh, in the future. I, I certainly have certain things, certain certain uh, scenarios I want to tell, and certain toys that I want to release along the lines for both these factions. Um, I think also, in my mind, when there is a black and red figure or a gunmetal and red figure, it is connected to uh, this idea of the death cult in some ways. It may not be that there's a literal, a literal sort of friendship or connection amongst these different characters, but at least a, a kind of spiritual affinity for one another. So you might have something like a Rift Killer that seems very far and detached from what Julio and his dad might be up to today, but um, by them choosing those colors for their costume, they may betray deep-held sympathies that they have for what the Death Cult is sort of trying to achieve. And while I may, may never sort of literally lay out those connections in a story or in a video or things like that, um, and maybe there's some contradiction that comes up by this acknowledgement, I think in a very superficial way, without thinking very deeply about it, whenever I design a character that is a darker color and then, you know, uh, hints of red, it usually my mind sort of makes sense to align itself with that kind of uh, death cult. Next question from Verde. Do you think Glios creators are going to start making lower quantities? You know, that's really a a question you'd have to ask them. I have no idea what other makers are ordering currently. Um, For me, personally, uh, I am ordering my bare minimum. I am interested in making sure that patrons have access to anything I make. And then beyond that, I'm not too concerned with whether or not things make it to the store. You know, I was thinking about this. um, I sort of work full-time on Knights of the Slice and on Zed Star 7 and on the Patreon. Um, But that may not always be the case, right? It is a privilege for me to have uh, my sole focus be my creative projects and for them to give me enough money to sort of survive and pay my bills and, you know, contribute to my household and things like that. Um... Because that may not always be the case, and I don't think there's anything wrong with me or anyone else picking up extra work on the side to supplement pursuing their creative dreams. Uh, I sort of look at it as such a privilege that I need to be incredibly responsible with my cash flow and how much I'm ordering and not carry a surplus of things like I have in previous years. Three or four years ago, I was racing to sort of keep enough inventory in stock for what I imagined, uh, you know, an increase of traffic would be. Um, Post-pandemic, I am ordering the bare minimum at all times to minimize my liability in inventory, in space, in cash flow, and things like that. Um, I don't, I I honestly don't know what other Glios makers, how they're sort of approaching uh, the world right now. Um, It's also... You know, I get to see those guys so rarely, maybe once or twice a year. It's kind of the last thing we want to talk about when we're in the same room together. We're almost talking about anything but manufacturing and, and uh, you know, making glass toys and things like that. Um, so I, I think this is a totally fair question. I have no idea. And, uh, you know, I think it would be a fair question to ask uh, anybody else. I would venture to guess that any toy company right now is probably uh, cutting their inventory on hand 
And, um, you know, that might be a smart room, a smart move, uh, especially because, you know, we have an election coming up and, um, you know, those tend to have reverberations for manufacturing over in China. Um, if Trump is reelected, I think that that could signal a lot of, uh, hesitation within the, uh, factories. You know, there's always that looming threat of, uh, import tariffs and things like that. And last time we had a couple news cycles of the import tariff threats, uh, our prices shot up. So, you know, that could very well be a factor. We could be heading into an even leaner time, uh, as it were. But in any case, I feel good with the numbers I have now. Uh, my primary concern is making sure patrons get a fair whack at whatever they like. And, um, you know, the, the truth is that there are enough patrons that that is a meaningful business there. I, I like to have sales outside of that. I like attracting new customers, but I can subside just on what, uh, my patrons sort of bring to the table. So, uh, for me, I tailor my business to that, to that notion. We got two questions here from the robot assassin. What toy companies do you think have the best quality control in the toy industry? And, uh, if your cat is a troublemaker, can you make a dedicated pet room in your house for your pets to reside in? So regarding quality control, um, I think it ebbs and flows for every company. And, you know, I've had the benefit of working at a couple different companies. I worked for Playalong. I worked for Mezco Toys. I worked for Jazzwares. Um, I've been the guy that gets flown over to China to sit on the assembly line and do quality control. So I have a pretty good idea of how that process works. And I would say that, uh, it, it changes, it changes in cycles, it changes in quarters. It largely, as far as I'm concerned, depends on how many Western people you have there on the ground. Um, if you have dedicated people, if you're a big company like Hasbro Mattel, you likely have dedicated people that live in Hong Kong or live in mainland China and you know their daily uh, job is to oversee this stuff and these are westerners these are typically you know americans that kind of go over there and oversee things um and I, I think you know quality control is largely a formula of how much uh how much western staff can you have overseeing production and having hands-on experience with what's coming down the assembly line the more you budget towards having those people in place, the better your quality control is going to be. The more you cut that back, the more sloppy your quality control is going to be. Um, so I don't think there's any company that is better or worse at these things, unless you're talking about something like Hot Toys, which is an insanely uh, high-end collectible, and they sort of have to have everything be pitch perfect. Um, for your Hasbros, your Mattels, your NECAs, your McFarlands, it comes and goes. And I think that's largely dependent on the personnel that you have in place physically on the ground overseeing these things. Regarding the idea of a pet room, uh, take this in the spirit for which it, which it is intended, but it doesn't sound like you are a current pet owner. Um, there's no better guarantee to ruin a single room in your house than by locking your pets in that room. Uh, they need space to run around, do their thing, uh, and if you keep them locked in a confined quarter, they are going to destroy that place. Um, doesn't matter how many toys they have, how much food or water, whatever amenities you give them, 
there will be scratch marks on the doors. They will start chewing up sofa cushions, etc., etc. Um, what you are picking up on, and most people are picking up on, is my my boisterous frustration at our new cat, and that comes down to personal failing on my part. One, I am an extremely impatient person, and two, I dislike disruptions, especially when I'm sort of doing something creatively. And uh, I have also never been around or raised a kitten before, and and certainly not one that was rescued off the street. So I am, uh, it is a transitional phase as she matures into an adult. She's also getting fixed uh, very soon, which does temper them quite greatly, uh, very dramatically, almost overnight. So while I, I do play this up a bit for the dramatic effect, uh, I do love my pets very much. I do love my cat. I know it is a sort of waiting game as she matures and after she has the surgery, um, you know, she will have a much more mellow temperament. But she has been a literal demon at times. It feels like there's a possessed entity uh, just going around and, and destroying things as, as are, you know, has been very well documented in me trying to record this podcast with just large slamming noises going on in the background at all times. Um, So that is the pet update for this week. Moving on to a question from Ian. How hard did you, did your face hit your palm when they said quid pro quo in tonight's episode of True Detective? Um, I got to be honest with you, we have not gone back to True Detective. My girlfriend and I sort of look at each other. We're like, should we watch it? And neither of us have a single flicker of enthusiasm for uh, continuing on. So I just, I don't think we're going to, we're going to continue with it. And it sounds like I have no idea the context in which this line was delivered, but it sounds fucking horrible. And like, I've made the right decision. So um, if I'm dramatically wrong, people feel free to chime in. But um, True Detective season four was not passing the mustard for me. And uh, that time, and because of that, I think uh, we're just going to stay away. Heading over to patreon.com slash Stasio for the Patreon-only questions of this week. We got Jonathan Ortiz. Does texture play a part for you or another toy company when designing a figure? Uh, I think it should. I think texture is an extremely important part of sculpting. One of the aspects that I dislike so much about reaction figures, which I own quite a bit of, and I I like Super 7 quite a bit, um, and I think they generally do good work, is that these are incredibly smooth, detailless figures. And there is a certain argument to be made that these are retro-style figures and they should look simplistic, but I think that's anachronistic in many ways, because if you go back and look at what Kenner was doing, while they were simplified sort of uh, characters, they were not lacking in detail necessarily. Like think of Bespin Luke. He's got, uh, you know, folds at the elbows and there is clothing details and things like that. Um, You know, I, I think texture is an extremely important consideration when you go down the road of sculpting. And I think the more texture you can add, the better uh, a figure could be. Another example I've talked about before is the uh, Marvel Legends Cyber figure. Cyber was such a cool character if you were around the time that those uh, Marvel Comics Presents 
issues were around. I think it was Sam Keith did the artwork, and it was Cyber versus Wolverine, and it was so, so fucking cool, beyond cool. So the fact that we even got a Cyber figure all these years later, this great uh, figure that was omitted from the original Toy Biz line, is really something special. But sure enough, I found this Cyber figure in a bin at a toy show for, you know, insanely cheap price. Um, its body lacks any detail, really. Its arms have some ribbing on the sort of adamantium sleeves, but the body itself is completely textureless. And if you think of the work of somebody like a Sam Keith, he is texture overload, right? To have something so smooth and so plain, uh, it just kind of defeats the aesthetics of, of uh, what could be a very cool figure. Now, granted, there is probably a production reason there's no detail on it, because they're likely reusing that body for a dozen different things, and you don't necessarily want too much detail because that betrays uh, the original sculpt. But um, I think it's severely lacking, and I think the, the attention to texture and different textures is very important. Now, um, it is also kind of difficult to pull off at the scale that I work at for 118th or roughly 4 inches. And in truth, a lot of texture you may sculpt at that scale might disappear in the production process because it's such... Uh, small real estate. But uh, even so, I, I, I tend to sort of design these things with many different textures in mind. When we were doing the diver, I sent little thumbnails of different material textures to signify what certain things would be like. So the accordion arms, I sent pictures of Soviet space suits, you know, that had a, a sort of similar uh, uh, sort of uh, I guess accordion style sleeve. Um, you know, the, the bag at his back, I showed some sort of like mesh fish bags and things like that. So, um, it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important for any artistic pursuit where you are rendering a form. Think about the textures that you are drawing or painting or photo collaging. What is the texture of skin? What is the texture of a shirt made out of cotton? What, you know, like these are important things to, to kind of think about. Next up from Gordon McKinnon Hall, when you get a resin action figure, what are your general expectations of how much you can pose it given the limitations of the material? You know, I think there's a sweet spot with resin figures that is uh, just two swivels at the shoulders. You know, I, I think that's more than reasonable. Um, you don't want to be playing too much with resin anyway. It's It's made more for display, not for play. And so I think you can really kind of pull off very interesting things uh, with just that basic uh, kind of layout. Now, if you want to throw hips in there as well, that's fine. You're going to have even more clearance and fit issues because hips are enclosed in the swivel. You have the sort of hindquarters to think about and also the clearance of the pant leg against the pelvis piece. Uh, whereas shoulders, you can just kind of freely spin those 180, just kind of make sure they're not bumping into any anything um, much easier to accommodate. So, you know, for me, I think uh, a resin figure, you, I think of it as kind of a maquette, right? And so just give me a little swivel at the uh, shoulders and, and I feel good about it. Next up from Chris Wynn, can you describe your favorite bootleg slash knockoff toy? Um, oh man, I have so many of them. I, I, I think I gravitate more towards bootlegs and knockoffs than I do sort of established toy brands. Um, it, it's hard to beat Chap May. Um, 
you know, particularly their ninja line is insane. And it's still, nothing is even compared to it to this day. Um, but, you know, for those who don't know, Chapmay are, you know, they've been around, geez, must be at least 30, maybe even 40 years. And they they do sort of uh, three and three quarter inch scale figures that remind you of something else. They're not licensed and they, they sort of uh, lean heavily on popular tropes of pop culture, uh, but they're phenomenal. They're really well-made, and they're typically pretty cheap and pretty affordable. Um, so, you know, I, I I think that's kind of hard to beat. And the, the Ninja line in particular was a big influence for Knights of the Slice, amongst many other toy lines. But, um, you know, really what they managed to achieve with sculpting and playability, accessories, it, it's really, you know... It's hard to top that. Next up, uh-oh, celebrity warning, celebrity warning. The Craftsman is in the house. If you guys have not seen his latest video on Safubi, you're doing yourself a disservice. Go watch it. It's fantastic. And actually, go follow Craftsman on Patreon. I'm always harping on about supporting independent artists. This is a great example to do that. And Craftsman gives you so much. I've learned so much from him, really. If you have any interest in making toys, resin, crafts, dioramas, painting, whatever the case may be. This guy has experimented with all of it. So go watch his videos. Um, you know, uh, most Squires of the Slice are pursuing a creative project, uh, you know, amongst the community. And the Craftsman is a wonderful resource for everybody to kind of up their game. Craftsman wants to know, how difficult is it to find a Chinese manufacturer who will not produce their own run of your toy for sale on wholesale sites. Specifically, we're talking about a, a factory bootlegging the product that they're making for you. Um, this is kind of a difficult question to answer, but really it boils down to what your relationship is with the factory. So for me, with the Glios figures that we make, it is not much of a concern for me. That's because I know the factory owner. I have gone over there several times. I have been to the production line. I've met the people making our toys. I have a very good view of every step in the process and, and what happens in the locations and the workshops and all these things. And more importantly, I have a face-to-face a -face personal relationship with these people. I've gone out to dinner with them. We have breathed the same air. So the likelihood that they are going to sort of go against that relationship to make a quick buck on my figures not very likely, right? The other thing is my intellectual property is not really worth anything on the open market in China or Hong Kong or the Pacific Rim or any bootleg stores. There's zero value to something that looks like my toys. There's a lot of value to toys that look like a Lego, look like a Iron Man figure, look like a Batman. Those have a universal built-in audience in these black markets. My stuff, not so much, right? Um... That being said, my stuff has been bootlegged before. The Knights of the Synth were bootlegged at whatever factory is making those. Now, in that case, that was a licensed deal, technically. Uh, Sentinel Toys had licensed my characters to make in their toy line. I had no input on the factories, the manufacturing. I had no oversight, hadn't visited those facilities, had no relationship with anybody uh, dealing with the manufacturing of that stuff. So... Uh, that happened, and that happened largely, I suspect, because of the uh, success of their synth body 
and the sort of secondary market value. I think it was pretty easy for, um, you know, little gray market shops to know that they were selling out of all these synth figures. They were very hard to come by. They were being demanded for a lot of money. So then it starts to make financial incentive for a factory to cut off a few spares or even a entirely different factory to just copy that figure and reverse engineer the tooling, which, you know, the case may be. I, I don't want to sort of cast dispersions about the Sentinel factory. I, I have no uh, proof that it was them sort of selling it sideways. It, it could very well be a completely uh, sort of separate third party just took it upon themselves to make a buck. That has certainly happened too. I think also back in the Jazzwares days, we ran into some level of bootlegging going on. Um, I guess ultimately, uh, I encourage everybody that's manufacturing stuff over there, visit there, go there, visit the factory, get to know who they are, meet with them, buy them dinner, let them buy you dinner, go out to karaoke with them. These are very, very important relationships. And we might not always have access to mainland China. We didn't have it during the pandemic. It's kind of spotty right now if you can get in. Uh, and as I touched on earlier, there might be a future with a different administration in the U.S. where you're not allowed to go over to China. <laughs> so while you can, if you are going to take plastics manufacturing seriously, spend the money, go over there, meet these people face to face. There is a, there's a huge cultural difference with the Pacific Rim countries and how they treat business associates that they've only emailed with versus business associates that they've sat down and shared a meal with. This is a huge deal for them. And uh, I guess it's not all that alien of a concept. I, I think we would kind of feel the same way, you know, here in the West. Um, but it does make a huge difference. And I really encourage people to go and make this trip. I think you know, not to go on too much of a diatribe here, but one of the great failings of all this wonderful technology we have with 3D sculpting and all the ease in which we can crank out all of these things, we have an entire generation of toy makers that have never made the trip over to China. And uh, I think that the lack of that experience very much shows up. Um, you have sculptors who have no idea how plastics uh, are sort of translatable from 3D designs. Uh, there's any number of tolerances and pressure issues that, you know, uh, an entire generation of, of freelancers have no idea or concept of because they've never been to the assembly line. So um, I'm a big proponent of, of encouraging people to do that. Now, if you're just doing a one-off final figure that maybe you release a couple times a year, I'm not sure it's worth the tremendous expense to, to get over there and undertake this stuff. But if this is a very serious part of your life or you are somebody working in the toy industry, um, these are, these are you know, it's a big trip that makes a big difference for the rest of your life. I guess ultimately, my answer is, um, at the end of the day, a factory can do whatever they want and there's not a whole lot of enforcement that somebody remotely from the U.S. can enact to protect themselves or to enforce or to uh, sort of take action on these things. It is a, a, it's a huge leap of faith and it is a game of trust in many ways. So, um, you know, as a sort of Westerner without sort of access to these processes, in many ways you are kind of, uh, you know, you're at the mercy of what happens there. 
And if you use a third party to manufacture on your behalf, or they use an agent who sources out to different factories, then that lever of power is even further obscured from you, sort of the end artist. So, you know, it can be a daunting thing. Um, I, I think it's important to have people you trust and people that you know and establish a relationship with. I think that it's the relationship that can, you know, ultimately smooth out any bumps in the road as they, uh, as they come up in the future. Next question from Shane, who I believe is a new patron. So welcome to Shane. Do you ever feel like you had a good idea for a character or storyline and then it dies as as a one-off in the crowd of all your other already established projects. I know I'm having trouble talking tonight, okay? Part of the reason is I'm recording this at nighttime instead of in the morning when I'm fresh and crisp. And so uh, I feel myself lagging and failing to communicate and failing to enunciate. So apologies there. Um, You know, I think it's important as a creative type to not use the terminology of of such finality, right? We think of a project as being dead. We think of a character as having failed to launch. We think of an abandoned comic book that we never got around to finishing. We think of a song that we only scribbled a few lyrics for and then never did anything with. And those experiences kind of build up in our mind as this backlog of failures, And I think that this is the wrong way to look at the creative process. I think it's actually uh, something that begets more false starts and more failures and more hesitation and more fear. So I choose to look at things like this as ongoing forever. You know, any storyline that just makes a little blip and maybe nobody reads and the character never continues on, that's not necessarily something that's dead. It just has not fully come to fruition yet. It is something I may get to at some point, something I may not. Um, A song I publish might drive me crazy listening to it afterwards in the car. And I may not be in a hurry to go and fix what I hear that's wrong with this. I may not be in a hurry to go back into the studio and re-record a new version of it because I know I may get to it later. All of these things are unfinished forever. Right, Even when I die, maybe somebody picks up the mantle and continues telling these stories. So I think it's important not to have the pressure of finality to anything you do. There is published, for sure, that is a a sort of binary thing. Things are either unpublished or published. But finished, I don't think, is a real qualifier. I don't think anything is finished that I've done. Um, I think I can revise anything I want at any time and put out a new edition, even if it's contradictory to previous editions. So um, I think that, you know, there's a distinction there I want to get across because I find a lot of creative people, myself included, fall into this idea of, you know, things that fall flat or things that are dead or things that didn't quite catch or failures, you know. And I think it's, it's probably a better process, for me at least, to kind of think about these things as, endless and boundless and forever continuing. Um, Regarding this specific scenario, though, where there's a character or storyline that really just becomes a one-hit wonder or even less than a one-hit wonder, uh, never sort of goes on to other things, that happens all the time and nearly everything I put out, right? Um, The conceptions I have when I'm first designing a figure 
based on when the figure gets in my hand and it's ready to release, there are so many dramatic changes that happen throughout that lifespan. And uh, I've gotten very good at not trying to predict or adhere to these preconceived notions about characters or stories because it has to change uh, based on what needs to happen. Um, very soon you're going to meet the the two figures in the action figure of the millennia January and February 2024 parcels. The ideas for both these figures have r radically sort of uh, changed over the past year. Uh, I, I started brainstorming the idea for this figure uh, sometime last year. And uh, the ideas and the concepts and the color schemes and everything else, even the parts that I thought I was going to use initially, those have all changed. So, um, you know, what I do does require a real flexibility uh, in my expectations for what these characters are and then what they might need to be when the time comes. Um, another good example the Dubois boys, right? This is our, our weapons dealer two-pack. Uh, these are, this was just released in the Patreon store, and this gave people a, a little sneak peek at uh, the Sea of Dagger pirate weapons that arrived early by some small miracle. Uh, the base figures in that pack were a uh, Radic figure, uh, two Radic figures, actually, one being a, a former AFOTM Robot Man homage, and then one being a sort of gold-pants... Um, God, I can't remember the name of the character now. In any case, Drill Bugman, was that his name? Terrible names, I'll be honest with you. Um, but in any case, those figures had their initial debuts. Neither of them did particularly well. And now they've been recycled and added new parts and they get to herald in all these interesting uh, brand new pieces of tooling. So they're serving a second purpose, which was not what I had designed. You could argue that both those characters died as just kind of a one-off at the time they debuted. And now they get this glorious second life. And none of that was planned when I first sat down and sketched out those characters. This has been the evolution of a story in real time based on what I needed to do, what new parts I had, where the story was going, what my my schedule for selling these things was. All of these, this confluence of all these little details just kind of come together and they create something as fun and exciting as the Dubois Boys, which, you know, sold out pretty quickly. People seem to be interested in this idea. And I think that's part of the magic of all of this. So, um... Something that dies today, in January, when I sell it, may live on and have a second coming next year, and it might usher in a, a whole new level of excitement. So I think it's important to, to kind of leave space for that. Next up, we got a great practical question from our boy, Lance Tomimoto. We are entering the Tomimoto zone. How often do you buy clothes or update your wardrobe? It's a fantastic question. Um... I would say not very often, uh, maybe twice a year. Um, usually it's with like dramatic seasonal changes. But, you know, I'm kind of at the stage where I'm very happy with what I have. Um, I just want to dress like a weeboo. You know, I just want to have like loose garments of Japanese construction. And um, I want to wear 
Jinbei's in the summer and Hanten's in the winter. And I kind of want to dress like um, Viggo Mortensen's character from Crimes of the Future. And, you know, at this point, I got to be at midlife. Maybe uh, I'm a few years shy of the midlife point. So I'm just going to lock myself into this little outfit repertoire. I think it's very uh, artistic. It's very, like, um, cool aging guy sort of vibe. And uh, I'm just going to not really uh, be too concerned with wardrobe from this point on. I think also, when I lived in Manhattan, I would buy new clothes all the time because you were always near new clothing stores. And, uh, you know, that's just something that, that sort of happened. Now I, uh, I'm locking myself in with this look. And I, I don't see myself really venturing too far out of there. So um, I think I spend... In a year, probably, I don't know, $500 on clothes, if that. And that's probably two different shopping days, um, you know, spending about $250 each. Probably once in the late spring and once in the uh, late fall. Um, the other thing is, if you own suits, you kind of cordon off a, a whole portion of your wardrobe and you never have to buy anything again assuming you have good fitting suits and they are relatively stylish but also timeless you don't want to be too avant-garde when you're buying suits uh at this point i have like i think five really good suits really solid suits so if i have a funeral i have a wedding i have a court date i have a family court date which is inherently biased against fathers by the way um i i'm covered I I have plenty of suits that I can wear to anything. I have plenty of blazers. I never have to buy any of those again, uh, so long as styles don't dramatically change. That's kind of one of the beauty parts of having nice suits is if you buy them correctly, uh, they're always going to look great, um, assuming they're fitted. There's nothing that looks worse than an ill-fitting suit. I really want to encourage people, one, buy a suit, and two, get it tailored. A lot of places will tailor your suit for free. It is worth it. Is worth the extra time it takes. Trust me. I'm going to give you all another really simple tip. Always have one pressed, no starch, dry cleaned white shirt in a plastic bag on a hanger in your closet at all times. If you wear it, bring it back to the dry cleaner the next day. You always need to have one crisp white button-up shirt. Always. You never know what's going to happen. You're going to get invited to some cool event. You're going to uh, go to, to WWE, and you're going to have front row seats. You're going to go meet Joe Rogan at Madison Square Garden. Whatever the case may be, keep a white shirt on hand. Need it in your closet. This is a very important piece of ammunition you have to have. If you have one or two good suits, if you've got a light-colored suit, dark-colored suit, and you got a white, crisp shirt that's always dry-cleaned, you're set for damn near anything. You don't even have to have nice shoes anymore. You can be wearing suits with sneakers that is perfectly acceptable. Um, these are really the keys to unlocking uh, how to be a Maxinista. Next up, a question from one of our newer patrons, Chuck Waterman. Do you like or love the film David Lynch, The Art Life? Um, you know, I'm looking this up. I know it's on Criterion, which I think is the best streaming service. I'm very happy to have a subscription to that. I don't know if I've seen this or I haven't seen this since it came out 
because it sounds very familiar and I recognize a lot of scenes from the trailer, but um, I'm drawing a complete blank as to whether or not uh, I've consumed this. So I'm going to add it to my queue and I'm going to watch it and I will report back. Generally, I, I, I really like David Lynch. Even his bad stuff I think is really fascinating. And uh, I'm always a big proponent of recommending his audiobook, Catching the Big Fish. For anybody doing anything creative, it's uh, it's got some great tips in there, so I highly recommend that. Next question, again, a newer patron, Ben Galipsy, Gillespie, Gillespie, I think I said that right. Welcome, Ben. Uh, Contra or Metal Slug? This is a really tough question. Um, I, I was shit at playing any Contra game. However, I really love Contra Force, which was like Contra um, in sort of contemporary time rather than a futuristic setting and i think that's great um it is actually it's a reskin of a, a completely unrelated japanese game as uh as i've read but uh i really sucked at playing any of the contra stuff with the exception of that game uh metal gear however i was pretty damn good at and um there was a time at jazzwares where we were doing retro arcade consoles this was long before 1UP Arcade, this is like 20 years prior, and uh, we made an SNK cabinet, mini cabinet, and so while we were in this sort of showroom at Toy Fair, we would just play Metal Slug nonstop, and it's such a fucking great game. I think also, like, graphically, there's a big difference between the first Contra on NES and the first Metal Slug in Arcade, um, so I gotta give this to Metal Slug. I just think it's more interesting, it's funnier, the, the bosses are uh, so preposterous, um, and I love the characters. I respect Contra, and I really love Contra Force, but I think I have to give the edge to Metal Slug. I, I think it's a superior franchise, even if it's a little more uh, buttoned down and, and not quite as uh, sci-fi, and doesn't have quite as many different settings as uh, the Contra games do. But I think I'm pretty comfortable with that answer. Next question, continuing on from our discussion last week from Zed Star Bren. What about a counterpoint to brute force? Is there something to be said for pulling your talents and ideas into a stew that needs to cook? Is there something sacred about officially releasing music, and where does that line cross? Um... Yes, I, I think this kind of goes without saying, but let's break this down piece by piece. Is there something sacred about officially releasing music? No, I don't believe so. Not in 2024, right? Not when Spotify has said they're just going to simply stop paying the majority of artists on their platform. And, uh, you know, there's no sort of recompense for that decision. They're simply just going to keep that streaming revenue. Um, if you also look at the frequency... And the sheer number of music that's being released online. Um, no, there is nothing sacred about it because there are millions and millions of people releasing music uh, across the globe. And it can all be heard and most of it will never be heard. So if this was 1965, yes, I think there would be something very sacred about officially releasing music. About getting a traditional record contract or paying for your own vinyl to be pressed. But... Um, in this late stage of the digital era, I do not believe there's anything sacred about it. I do think it's incumbent upon the artist to put together the best, 
most reasonably competent takes of tracks to put out there. Um, you know, there should be a coat of polish on things. Um, but uh, no, given that the, the field is flooded with uh, different choices of musicians to listen to at any given time at the touch of a fingertip, um, no, I do not believe it, there is a, uh, anything sacred about that process. Um, regarding giving things time to cook and having a counterpoint to brute force, absolutely. Uh, you know, having a gentle touch with creative pursuits is certainly important. You know, knowing subtlety is super important to having meaningful artwork. But what I have encountered with all of the creative people in my life is there is a uh, sort of timidness about sharing artwork. And I've encountered that with Squires of the Slice as well. And I think that's a completely natural state of mind to be in. Most people should not be in such a frenzy as I am, that they are releasing stuff all the time as if it's vomit and they can't hold it back. Um, but I think there's also a lesson to be gleaned there where you can put stuff out and maybe nothing happens. Maybe nothing bad happens. Maybe, in fact, you get a couple slightly positive, uh, you know, pieces of feedback from friends and family. Um, I, I think that Overcoming the fear of sharing work is more important than the idea of giving things the time they need, uh, adding subtlety to your work, pulling, you know, your talents. All of that is, is sort of a foregone conclusion. I agree with all of it. Um, but what I see being the most immediate failing of modern creatives is this fear or inability to share or to publish. And, um, you know, I think that pushing through that is the, is the tip of the spear. It's the, the single highest priority for artists in this era. You got to sort of get it out there. You have to get to an audience or just get to other human beings so that the work can be transformed into art through the sharing process. Speaking of art and artists, we have a final question from Ian here. And uh, he feels the preamble is as important as a question, so let's humor him. The generation of artistic imagery is now no longer an issue. AI lets you import a visual library and have that be the source from which it crafts all visuals based on specific prompts. You can create thumbnails of a comic script along a single frame, sorry, alongside a single frame that you want the rest of the comic to look like, and then it just does it, text bubbles included. You can make decks of card slicer cards. You can generate or clean up scripts. You can create articulated digital models. You can program user experiences as well as generate the actual code for these programs. All of these things are now achievable in seconds. If your competition does it, which they are, your Hasbro, McFarlane, Magic the Gathering, how can you not follow this path and survive? Well, I, I don't disagree with the, the premise of the question here, but I do think there are a couple bigger truths that need acknowledging. And one is, we do not understand yet the entire ramifications of AI in the creative field. I think it is indisputable that people are going to lose their jobs as corporations will lean more and more on AI to automate what they typically paid, uh, from their standpoint, very expensive salaries to sort of have happen. But there is also a bell curve there. There will be a certain point where 
everything looks like absolute shit and there will be a matriculation back to human artists. Not to say it will be in a meaningful way or it will be more than it was pre-AI, but there will be a sort of return to needing human eyeballs and human hands on projects as everything starts to look all the same. Uh, Part of the reason is, you know, the phenomenon with AI is that it's not generating art. Uh, I would point people to the AI report from Brad Chamel. I think that is the best take that I've ever seen, uh, and it encapsulates the entire phenomenon of this. But essentially, art is created when beings use their perspective, their history, their life experience, and they use their, their means to craft a body of work that reflects their experience. AI is computer generation of what humans are telling it to do. The robots or the AI have no life experience that they're infusing into art. There is no unique creation here. If if AI and if robots were able to create art, it would look unrecognizable to human beings because it would be based on their experience, their muscle memory, what they have gone through, what they aspire to be. Um, so when we see AI art that's out there, this is a sort of bastardization of the process. This is still human input being translated through a large language model and being outputted. And while it is gimmicky and maybe exciting and maybe scary at this time, uh, I think that that is going to wear off and we're going to get to something different, some different relationship we have with this stuff. Um, There's no doubt that, you know, McFarlane and Hasbro and Magic the Gathering are already incorporating this stuff, as are all the video game companies and everyone else. But as far as me and my personal output and my personal livelihood, um, the visual image is not what I make my money on, right? Uh, The toys that I manufacture is a good portion of my revenue, But it's not the reason you guys are here listening to this. Um, AI's ability to mimic or write a Z Star 7 song might be a fun gimmick, might be even very convincing, but for the 10 or so people that actually watch what I do or have seen us play live, uh, you would not receive any of the benefits, any of the value uh, that you would for being a live human being in a live audience watching a show unfold before you. I guess my main point here is what I'm offering my audience, my customers, is not uh, a product per se. It is me. It It is my fingerprint on certain products. It is how my life experience has shaped how I design a toy. It is how... My memories have informed the lyrics I write in a song on a live stream you watch. Um, The sort of value proposition is you're getting a unique piece of my mind with everything I I put out there, every video I make. Um, You know, the the uniqueness uh, is the one thing that can never be duplicated. 
by any large language model. And again, I don't mean to minimize the misery of the working artists that are now being laid off and being replaced and finding work becoming more scarce with these big corporations as they pivot towards this uh, potentially money-saving avenue. But what I would say is that the artists that have found their own unique voice and are putting work out there that is a sort of a direct conduit to how their mind works, uh, they will be fine with the big wave of AI. Uh, let's point to somebody like Coop, right? Fantastic artist, been around forever, really carved out a unique look and a unique uh, sort of oeuvre to his work. And sure, AI could easily duplicate what Coop does. Coop was probably on the list of artists that got ripped off. And by the way, uh, the circulation of that list of all the living artists that these models were trained off of, if that's true, that is actionable in a class action lawsuit, in my opinion, my non-legal opinion. And they should absolutely be suing Midjourney and everybody else if that list is true. And those artists should receive compensation. No question. But the people that are going to survive this are the people that their body of work is not just solely based on things they have done for large corporations, right? It is people that found their own voice and work with a smaller audience. You know, some artists only... I have a couple hundred people that like what I do. And that's enough for me to survive in a, you know, comfortable, slightly upper middle class lifestyle. Um... You know, I, I think that the opportunities for individual artists are going to be more and more scarce as something like a Hotel Transylvania could be completely automated by AI. So there's not a reason to sort of seek out, you know, an individual artist to kind of spearhead the look and the style of that movie. Um, there's no question that the, the ground is moving here and we don't know really what's going to take shape and what's going to metastasize and how things are going to go moving forward. It is going to be worse for artists, but I have never lived in an environment that was favorable to artists, okay? Ever since I entered the job market, art was something I did on the margins. It was never something that uh, I could breathe and have the space and time to do. It was only through working in other industries that were non-artistic that I made money, that I was able to afford a lifestyle where I could do art, but again, only on the periphery. This notion that artists have historically been well compensated or paid what they're worth or had enough comfort to sort of explore these things is a fallacy because the vast majority of artists have not been able to function that way. Um, so there's no question conditions are going to get worse, but I never saw the conditions as being particularly favorable. I know plenty of people firsthand who are phenomenal artists. They are incredible, and they are way more naturally talented than somebody like me is. But they are being squandered away in meaningless jobs. You know, some of them are working at Rite Aid. Some of them are just trying to make ends meet paycheck to paycheck. Um, so I've never seen an equitable playing field in my life. So the fact that it's getting worse is not surprising whatsoever. I think also in some ways, you know, the American workforce when it comes to 
uh, concept artist or film production or video game production or uh, animation is completely separate and compartmentalized and segregated. Uh, Peter Chung talks all the time about how working with Japanese animation houses, every single person in the Japanese animation house has done every single job. You know, the directors that we love so much from anime, Miyazaki, etc., um, uh, Saito Khan, they, these people can do every single job in the company. Uh, in some cases, you know, you have, um, like Nausicaa, the manga, written and drawn by the artist that eventually directed the anime. Like, that's insane. That is such a, a profound skill set. Um, you know, in America, we kind of compartmentalize, and you're only supposed to be good at one specific thing and become the expert of just that unvaried skill. And the problem with that is that leaves you very precarious. Somebody like me who, granted, I make about $20 on Twitch live streaming. You know, I make a little bit more on Patreon with content and the Distazapod, And then I make the lion's share of my money in e-commerce. Those are diversified skills that I've sort of taught myself or picked up over the years. And it keeps my revenue coming in in three different ways, right? If I was just a contract artist or I was just still consulting for other businesses, um, it just takes one disruption of the market and that revenue stream dries up. So there is sort of an argument for being a multifaceted um, worker, I guess. And, and that's asking a lot. You know, going back to education fucking sucks at, you know, a mature age. Uh, but I think that is the reality of the world we live in. You have to sort of have a lot of different stuff you can offer that will generate revenue in different areas. And it's exhausting. Uh, but that is the sort of price of admission right now. In regards to how can I not follow this path? Um, I don't know that I'm avoiding this path, right? I do use some level of AI in uh, ideation. I do use it when it comes to upscaling older pieces of work. Uh, certainly in videos that I make, AI has been very helpful. I have taken tiny footage from a, a webcam back in, in the year 2000 and been able to upscale it into something usable. And that's a pretty unique and valuable thing. Uh, so while AI is no doubt destroying traditional, the traditional market for artists, uh, it is also giving artists tools that level the playing field based on the computational power that only was in the purview of things like big gaming companies or a big multi-corporation like Sony. Um, so I think also if an artist is trying to survive in this reality, uh, you should use the tools that are out there and exploit back. Justice Joseph, uh, he's a, a very, very uh, renowned concepts uh, artist in Hollywood. He did uh, the designs for Rodan in the American um, sort of uh, Godzilla and, you know, Monsterverse, whatever they're calling it. Um, he also sculpted the original classic Night of the Slice figure, right? And Justice lately has been posting um, works that have been upscaled with AI. 
So he does a pencil drawing or a drawing on Procreate. He upscales it with AI. And it is conceivable he's going to sell that stuff to his clients with AI's fingerprint on it because it's his original drawing. Granted, AI has been sourced from very erroneous uh, data sets, but that is done. There's, you know, there's no way to put the toothpaste back in the tube there. But if it's saving him time and allowing him to sort of market his work or work on multiple projects at the same time and exploit back these studios, then, uh, you know, I think that's a pretty convincing argument uh, that it can, I don't want to say help artists because it it has sort of, uh, you know, it's really going to, it's going to be a bloodbath. Uh, But the technology is not without its merits, I think I would say. Now to the final point, how will I survive this? Or how will one survive this? You know, we will survive as we always have. Uh, We tend to think of all commerce as only being a feature of modern capitalism, but it's not. Uh, Same with artistry. People were making art and selling art long before capitalism ever came around, long before the technocracy ever came around, and we will continue to do so long afterwards. So, I understand that this does present an existential crisis to many people, many friends of mine, many squires of the slice, but we don't know what shape it's going to take. And there will always be a demand for people and artists and the things they do so long as they have connected with other human beings. And, uh, you know, I don't want to say I I feel optimistic about the future because I do not, but I feel optimistic about human connection and about an artist like me's ability to maintain an artist, a, a sort of a customer base, hate calling it that, but that's what it is, throughout all of these crazy ebbs and flows and schisms. Uh, I believe at the end of the day, if you have made a connection with other human beings, that is going to be the saving grace ultimately. Whether that means you can glean enough of a living off of that human connection that's an open question but everything sort of depends on our connection to each other and as and if conditions worsen that connection is going to be more and more important so i'm going to leave it there i think that's an excellent question i have to go to the dentist i'm hoping they say i've been a good boy and i got no cavities of course they're gonna i'm the best i'm absolutely the best at going to the dentist Um, so, uh, I'm going to say pizza out. I'm going to leave you with a Z star seven song and we're going to talk soon. Bye-bye.